HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. We are a member-supported nonprofit food radio station. That means that every single thing we do, from broadcasting 35 weekly shows for free to bringing you exclusive content from sold-out food events across the country to offering scholarships to high school students, is only possible thanks to the support of our loyal members. And we want you to join the club. Become a member during our 2017 Summer Drive to get access to sweet swag and pledge your support to the world's only food radio station. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member now. Good morning and welcome to The Line here on Heritage Radio. Today on the show, I welcome Dave Missoni, who has an extensive restaurant resume stretching all the way back to his childhood in Maryland. Over more than a 20-year career, Dave has worked everywhere from huge nightclubs to some of the finest Italian restaurants in the nation right here in New York City. His Three Kings restaurant group now operates several spots, including the much-beloved Tall Day in Brooklyn. They have restaurants in New York, New Jersey, Miami, they have many things opening and I assume big plans down the road. Dave, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, Eli. I'm uh, really psyched to be here. So let's start off with the Imperial Hotel in Maryland. Tell uh, me about how that came to be. Sure. So I uh, grew up in Chevy Chase, Maryland, uh, right outside of D.C. until I was about 14. And then we moved to the Eastern Shore. My parents wanted to get us out of the city. Uh, an easier, simpler way of life. And they were like a lot of people that saw opening and owning a restaurant as a very romantic thing that they could do in their spare time. In addition to their regular careers, uh, my dad had a big career in consulting in Washington, D.C. Um, my mom had just closed a 20 year business as an employment agent um, in D.C. also. And they bought this little 13-room hotel and restaurant um, that was very, very, very Victorian. Like, 
um, so many Victorian like paterns and paisleys and mm -hmm. prints throughout the whole place. And it had been pretty well renovated. Um, and the hotel side wasn't really exciting to my parents. It was kind of like the, the, the structure that held this really, what they hoped was going to be a really cool restaurant. Um, and for 10 years it was, uh, and they, um, they owned and operated it and I don't think they ever made a single dime. Um, but it was a, a big, you know, love affair with serving great food, great wine. We had amazing chefs and, uh, so did was, you move to the hotel or you live nearby? No, we live, near, we live nearby about three blocks away mm -hmm. in this little historic town on the Eastern shore of Maryland called Chestertown, right on the Chester river. Um, the hotel had been built in 1903. So it was this old historic property. Um, it had two dining rooms, one kitchen, a tiny, tiny little library lounge. Um, and, uh, yeah, we, my parents didn't really know what, they, neither of them had ever done a day of work in the restaurant business. I assume they put you to work though, they, right? They like, put my, my, are you guys cleaning rooms oh, yeah, and yeah, yeah. We did everything. bussing tables? And my brother, my sister, and I, I'm the middle child. Mm -hmm. Uh, we did everything. Um, and... I definitely seemed to be the one that was most in love with it, um, and I definitely, uh, you know, took the bait, hook, line, and sinker on on loving the industry, not knowing it was going to be the rest of my life that I would be in it, but at the time, loving every minute of it. It's interesting that they chose to do maybe the two most difficult businesses at the same time, which are running a hotel and running a restaurant. Yep. Both of those are prone to failure, yep. and uh, it's just constantly, constantly having to pay attention to detail with hospitality. So how 10 years is a really good run. Yeah. How did they at first, though... How do they set themselves up to even try to do that? Did they just did they hire a chef? Yes. Did they hire a manager? Like how so did it they work? they brought an amazing chef from DC um, to the Eastern Shore. He and his wife were the wife was front of house, uh, the husband was the chef, and they basically ran the place for the first three years. Um, a guy named Dan Turgeon, who went on to be um, one of the top professors at uh, Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park. Um, any chef that's gone through. Uh, CIA in, um, let's say the, you know, late nineties to early two thousands. Uh, he was the chef, uh, teacher at American bounty. So you couldn't graduate without Dan Turgeon giving you the final stamp of approval. And he was amazing. He had worked for Madeline Kamen, uh, Jeffrey Boobin in DC. Um, and we, what my parents focused on was what they were passionate about. They were passionate about food. They were passionate about wine. Um, they started a wine society in the um, restaurant. We had monthly uh, winemaker dinners. Um, and they did a lot of really great work. Uh, the next chef after after Dan Turgeon was a guy named Rodney Scruggs, who uh, went on to become the executive chef of The Occidental, one of the oldest restaurants in America, uh, in Washington, D.C., right across the street from the White House. So we had really talented people that worked there. And a lot of the young men and women who worked under these people went on to do great things in the restaurant business. A lot of them went on to have really, really, you know, successful careers. So you got to literally rub shoulders with people that were doing this already as their lifelong passion and careers as a young teenager. Yep. And you're kind of coming up and seeing all this happen. Um, what did it feel like when you, um, when they closed the hotel, like what's that, that moment like for you, it's obviously a big part of your childhood sure. and your, and your life. And you have all these probably memories of playing and working there. Sure. Uh, what, what does that feel like? And, and what are the, 
what are the takeaways from being open for 10 years and then and then closing down? So right towards the end of that 10 year um, uh, time span, they um, leased it out to another couple uh, with the option that they were going to buy it at the end of it. The couple never made good on it, um, but they found someone else to buy it. But during that year, I really didn't want to work there under someone else. Um, so I went off and did... And I guess it, I was, it was a paid stage, but I went and worked at a place called the Inn Perry Cabin, uh, also on the Eastern Shore. Uh, at the time, it was owned by uh, Lord and Lady Ashley. I usually, for like uh, pop culture references, tell people it's the wedding scene in the beginning of Wedding Crashers, uh, where Will Ferrell and, and uh, Owen Wilson go for the, the big, big wedding at this mm-hmm. big estate. And that's where it was. And but it was all British butler style service. I mean, okay. it was all Brits that worked there. Uh-huh. Um, I learned, you know, I'll never forget when my wife and I first started watching Downton Abbey. I was like, I used to have to do that. Like ironing the tablecloths, you know. Oh, ru- wow. Like rulers, super, super formal. Super, super, super formal. And that was my first taste at that. Um, at the end of that year, that couple never made good on the um, option to buy the, the Imperial Hotel from my parents. And they put it on the market and found someone else. But it was during that last six months when they were trying to find the new people to buy it, um, uh, my mom and I had to do everything. Uh, like, everybody had quit. The, nobody liked the old the people that had had it for the one year. So when it sold, it was a giant relief for me, for my parents. Um, so there wasn't a whole lot of uh, emotions spent on... Um, mourning the loss of it and mourning it no longer being in our family. It was, I was happy to have it no longer being an albatross around my parents' neck. <laughs> so I read that you were the class president of your high school. I was. And yeah. that you uh, you had a scholarship to go to Loyola, but then you didn't end up going. So yeah. um, I'm curious as sort of having that sort of resume that would lead you into college, what, what led you to make the decisions to not go to school and then you went, came to New York City. So what was the reasons for that? So I think in, in, in a lot of hindsight, it was that the restaurant bug had gotten into me. I just didn't know it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there's also, you know, the, the drug culture had gotten into me too, you know, uh, uh, experimenting, wanting to do anything but school. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't blame that on the restaurant industry. I, I kind of thank the restaurant industry for it. It made me want to experiment, made me want to go try different things, made me want to get out of my little town. Um, but it didn't make me want to go to college. Um, and it was one of those things where my parents <laughs> still are upset about it. We were two weeks away from freshman orientation and I said, I'm not going. You pulled the rug I out from rug. under them. <laughs> and so my parents said, okay, you at least need to go to community college. Um, and if after a year of community college, you don't like it, you know, do whatever you want to do, but you have to try that. And my buddy and I, who also was going through a tough time would go, because uh, we weren't living in dorms, we would leave our parents' homes at eighteen, nineteen, drive to community college, and bear left instead, and go to the movies all day long and watch <laughs> movies. Um, but I was still working in restaurants, um, and um, you know, right as my parents were getting ready to finally sell the hotel for real, um, I decided, you know, it was it was. Kind of cheesy. I was watching an episode of Inside the Actor Studio, and I was like, I should move to New York and become an actor. I think I'd done maybe two high school plays at the time. You were ready, though. But you I was were ready. so ready. It, it was my calling. Broadway was calling. Broadway was calling. And I got to New York, um, and 
I had all these actor friends who told me you're going to pick up a, a, a you know, this was before smartphones. This was 1997. So it was like, pick up a copy of the back page to find out where the auditions are, how, who you're going to get your headshot done by. And I was doing all this in Soho because it was kind of the only neighborhood I knew at the time. Um, and I knew I needed a job. And I landed a job at a place called Zoe uh, on Prince Street. It's not there anymore, but it, it had like a good 20-year run. And the people hired me as um, the Lafredos or the couple that owned it. They hired me as a junior assistant manager in training, <laughs> which for great, those of you. Great title. great title. What does it mean? It means a most. <laughs> and uh, what a most is, is a male host or male hostess. And I, I, I guess I'm being a little uh, uh, gender uh, specific here. But um, I was basically a host and a coat check and a catch all and a gopher and do whatever. And I would sit at, I was, they were paying me nothing. And I would sit at family meal and eat like three portions because it was the only food I was getting for the day. Uh-huh. And all these young waiters were like, dude, you've got a ton of restaurant experience. Why are you doing this job? And I was like, because it's my, it's my track towards management. And, and, and it's the only way I'm going to get a manager job. And they said, no, man, just go get a waiter job for your first year. You'll make some money. You'll make some money. You'll, You'll be yeah. a whole lot happier. Yeah. And so I was only there at Zoe for about three months, and I walked down. They said, just start walking around the neighborhood and find some other place that you want to work. And where the Dutch is now in Soho, uh, Andrew Carmelini's restaurant, was a restaurant called The Cub Room. And, uh, Chef in, Henry Meir? Chef Henry Meir. Okay. And uh, The Cub Room was white hot when I was working there. And I love that, you know... You just walk around the neighborhood like young 20-year-olds now are like, what do you mean you just walk around? It's like, no, you're on Craigslist. That's the only way you find jobs <laughs> yeah. now. But back then, you would walk in and say, are you hiring? Yeah. Right? And so – This was even before Kinko. So you'd have to find a copy store. You'd have to have printed out your resume somewhere, make copies of your resume, and walk around with this folder full of hopefully – you know. Hopefully, you were going to get a job with the 20 resumes you had in your now, folder. Now, do people even ask for resumes? They're like, look, can you start working tonight? We <laughs> lost three servers and two cooks. Like, what, whatever you can do, just like put on some it's a, chef it's, whites it's and a, get in the kitchen. It's you know? a very desperate scene in the... Uh, so what what do you learn? Like, you're working at this, this red-hot restaurant. Um, it's... It's popular. It's busy. What are you... You're a young guy. Like... It must be exciting to be working at that type of restaurant. What did you learn from that experience? So everything was exciting. New York was exciting. Working in Soho was exciting. Um, Soho was still a gallery neighborhood. You know, there were gallery openings every night. It wasn't just a, um, you know, a sh- an outdoor shopping mall like it is today, you know. And, you know, I'd be walking to the train and bumping into Spike Lee. I'd be seeing famous actors in the restaurant every night. Um, and I don't think I was in the, that restaurant cub room maybe a month or two um, that I called my parents and I was like, I, I, I'm going to be in the restaurant business. It's what I'm going to do with my life. And they both kind of laughed and they were like, well, we always thought you would, you know. It's um, their fault. Yeah, it's their fault. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> they can't blame they you. Can't, they, 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 they had you bussing tables when well, you were a young kid. And it was one of those things where I just started asking myself, even at, you know, whatever, I was 22, um, what do you think you need to be happy? And it was... Do some cool traveling, at least one trip a year, uh, have a nice apartment, and be able to pay my bills and go out and have fun. And I was like, I can get that from the restaurant industry, and I'll get that just from my own hard work, not from luck or a connection. I, I could get it just by working hard. And so I just put my nails to the grindstone and started working really hard for Henry. And 
um, I think within three or four months I was, uh, cause they, they realized I had a lot of wine knowledge, um, that I was like the assistant sommelier. And then, um, from there, uh, an assistant manager quit and I was promoted to an assistant manager at, and everybody called me the kid and, you know, I was 22, 23. Um, and I was one of the managers running this really hot restaurant and, uh, and yeah, I stuck with Henry for about three years, not just at Cub Room. He opened a new place in Tribeca called City Hall, and I went there to be the service director. Um, so you're gaining all this knowledge and all this experience, and then I'm curious how you went from being in sort of a more traditional restaurant setting to there was a club in the meatpacking yeah. district called, was it called Lotus? It's called Lotus. Lotus. Uh, I can imagine what the meatpacking club was like in the 90s, but can you tell us, like, how crazy that scene must have been? Like, yeah. that must have been I, I, I wild. Had, <laughs> I had no intentions of getting into the club world. Um, like I would said, a lot of young, cool guys and girls worked for my parents and went on to do cool things. And one of my friends, uh, a guy named Chip Connard, had uh, done his externship from CIA at Mercer Kitchen when Mercer Kitchen had just opened. And he worked for a chef there named Richard Fernab under Jean-Georges. And um, he called me. He was like, hey, I'm done with my externship. And this guy, Richard, who I did my extern with, is going to be the chef of a nightclub in the meatpacking district. And there was some I, I had three and a half years with Henry was long enough. And it was time for me to move on. And I met with this guy, this chef, Richard, and he he hired me in as I wasn't running the nightclub. I was running the restaurant inside of the nightclub. Um, and uh, I think my title was restaurant manager, but essentially I was the GM of the restaurant. So did, it was a did huge people order food in said nightclub. So here's the thing that ended up. How happening. does that work? <laughs> it was a ton of celebrity clientele, a ton of nightlife people coming in for for food pre the club as time went on it was as there's this case with all of nightlife in new york city it was your wall street guys your hedge fund guys your stockbrokers using their dinner reservation to get access to the club because they couldn't get past the velvet sure. rope but they knew that if they booked a dinner reservation and our menu was like a, at the time was like a, a very expensive 65 dollar pre-fee um but you know, the, for people that didn't know Lotus in that time period, Lotus was the closest thing to Studio 54 since Studio 54. Like other things maybe have surpassed it since then. Um, but it was the hottest club in the world. And I'll never forget um, one of the MTV Music Awards when it was always in New York before it had gone back and forth. Mm -hmm. um, Little Kim was the last person speaking on live TV. And um, she said, hey, everybody, parties at Lotus. And 14th Street had to be shut down. And uh, the owners of Lotus. 5,000 people showed up oh, to go to was, Lotus. It was a madhouse. And I'll never forget, I was helping the doorman. I've always been a big guy. So, uh, you know, I, I've always been like kind of the de facto security when they needed an extra person. So I was helping out at the door during this mayhem that was going on. And the police had shut the door down. They were like, no one else gets in or out. And as that happened, um, uh, Kid Rock and Pamela Anderson, because they were dating at the time, walked up. And I was like, sorry, I can't let you guys in. And the cops were like, are you out of your mind? Let them in or we're going to have a, a, a riot out here. <laughs> um, so the cops made an ex exception for Kid Rock and Pamela Anderson. So, you know, you're, you're at this club and... I want to know, like, obviously there's, there's fun, there's excitement, like it's a crazy time, but 
what do you actually take away from that experience that's helped you now by being in like a high volume place where it's kind of sceny? I mean, I know you do stuff in Miami and you have some hotel stuff and I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, Lotus is maybe closer to a hotel rooftop project sure. than Toll Day in Brooklyn is. I didn't think I'd ever get back into that world ever again. Uh, it's not that I hated it. It was kind of like, Okay, that's a notch on my resume. Glad I had that experience. I wonder if it'll ever come back in, to help me later in my career. And it is now. Um, being in the Miami scene, um, that Lotus experience has helped. And now owning two of the hottest rooftop bars in, in New York City is helping as well. I'm seeing a lot of those old familiar faces with a lot more wrinkles now, but still partying you're, like they're... But, you're, you, but you know how to control a door. You know sure. how to work a line. Like all these things that restaurant doesn't necessarily always transfer to bar. Like no. they're totally different animals. And But there are so many things that we do across the industry that are the same. And like what? Um, like, for example, when I was working in hotels and I, I haven't done it since then, but like when I'd gone to the Inn at Perry cabin to work there, I learned how to truly deep clean a room and how to wipe the walls down with a very, very, very low amount of soap in the in diluted water. And we we deep clean our restaurants the same way I learned how to deep clean a guest room, you know, Um I don't know. That's just one example. But and, and then, you know, as far as the nightclub business goes and how you transitioned this nightclub from a restaurant to a nightclub and um, how you got people out of their seats to make way for the people coming in and buying bottles like it was it was it was awful. It was awful, awful, awful. But I guarantee you I can deal with any problem customer now because of it. Before we get into sort of present day, I want to touch on you joining up with Joe and Mario, mm -hmm. uh, two huge names yeah. in New York at that time. And now I would say pretty much worldwide, worldwide. recognition. So you were at, you worked at a lot of places with them, yep. but touch just briefly, uh, if you can, about working as the service director at Babo and then, um, any other sort of highlights with that experience? I know you were with them for several years. You must have been able to glean a lot of important things from that. Well, so a couple of things. I think one of the important things that you mentioned also was me working as a service director. And this is something that I kind of try to preach to young managers all the time. I was a service director in New York City for almost 15 years before making the jump to being a general manager. And maybe that's because no one was willing to give me a chance, but it was also because it was the road that I wanted to be on. I knew there was a ton of stuff that I could learn from people that were way better at managing restaurants than I was by continuing to be a service director. It also gave me a lot of flexibility to move around um, uh, from job to job and get more experience. I was lucky enough with Joe and Mario that I got to move around within a company. So it didn't look like I was constantly jumping ship. They moved me around from restaurant to restaurant. Can you actually just dig in a little bit, service director versus GM? What are the main differences there, just for people listening that are thinking that those are kind of the exact same role? They're not. Sure, they're not. So general manager, every single solitary aspect of the restaurant is your responsibility, from the kitchen staff to the executive chef to um, who's doing the bookkeeping, to all of the admin work that goes into running a successful restaurant. Service director, you're very myopic. You are focused on guest satisfaction and nothing but guest satisfaction and training staff and molding staff and um, and trying to make service better and better every day. And that, and that is your one focus. Um, and I liked having that one focus. 
um, I then came out of that time and, and realized, oh, oh, well, then make, now finally making the jump to GM is going to be so easy. And it, and it wasn't. I, there were so many things that um, staying in that one one focus for a long time uh, left some things that, you know, I hadn't learned. Um, and my first GM job was a place called Enoteca down on the Lower East Side. And I was there for about three, three and a half years as the GM. What do you think is the main thing that you took away from working uh, with under Joe on the service side of things sure. since he's so experienced in that I, realm? I, I went all in with Joe and Mario. Like I, I drank their Kool-Aid uh, willingly, uh, happily, and I still tell people it was the best time of my life of working for other people. I learned more from them than anybody else. Um, but I really went all in almost to the point of like your brown nosing student. Like I did everything that I was asked of, uh, that was asked of me. Um, I had two days off a week from my job pretty much the entire time I was working for them from Eska to Oto to Babo. Um, and one day a week I would always commit to being Joe's assistant and I would meet with him wherever he was during the day and get to follow him around and, um, uh, I learned a lot from him. Uh, you know, I got to go into meetings with him. I got to see him planning Del Posto. I got to see his brain working on his and, and Mario's um, um, company development and how they were growing. You know, they went from, you know, uh, a couple of great West Village, you know, Greenwich Village restaurants to exploding um, on the national and now global level. Uh, I wasn't there for that part of it, but I got to see it start. That's a, an amazing takeaway that that people listening can think about, which is that you sort of offered yourself up above and beyond. Mm -hmm. And in return, he gave you access, you which uh, I'm sure has shaped some of your ideas about Three Kings. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. I'm here with Dave Missoni. And when we come back, we're going to talk about you leaving a, a restaurant empire and, and going off to start your own with uh, John and Dale. Uh, we'll be right back. Stick with us here on Heritage Radio. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters who acknowledge the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. Hi, I'm Jacqueline Raposo. And I'm Ben Rosenblatt. And we are Love Bites on Heritage Radio Network. Our show is all about why and how we love. Tune in every Monday at 4 as we talk about endings, new beginnings in relationships, about couples who work together and love together. And what life teaches us about love. 
So support our show and all of Heritage Radio Network's programming. Go to heritageradionetwork.org and click on that beating heart to become a member today, and we will love you forever for it. See ya. Welcome back to the line. Just a quick note on supporting Heritage Radio Network. Uh, it would be great if you're listening, if you would become a member. Uh, Heritage Radio is uh, the world's pioneer food radio station. We broadcast live from a recycled shipping container inside of Roberta's uh, restaurant in the back uh, in Bushwick, Brooklyn. And as a 501c3 nonprofit, Heritage Radio runs on the support of our members and donors, and your contribution is tax deductible. Our network is united in the idea that a small group of dedicated people can change the world one soundbite at a time. So if you can, head over to heritageradionetwork.org and click on the heart and please donate today. Uh, I'm back with Dave Massoni and uh, I want to jump into sort of present day where you're at right now. You've spent 15, 20 years working for other people all around New York and you decide, all right, it's time to do my own thing. Who's John Bush? How does he figure into this story? So John Bush was my first real New York friend. Um, John is from the West Coast, from Santa Cruz, California. And my godbrother, who, uh, for the the Gentiles out there, uh, my mom is his godmother, and my mom and da- or my mom and dad are his godparents. And I am uh, his mom is my godmother. There's a great guy named Max Huber who was a uh, big in the punk rock music scene in Southern California, uh, was the guitarist of a band called the Swinging Utters, and John Bush used to do merch with them when they'd go on tour. And uh, John's always been a bartender, and he decided to move to New York City, I guess about two years before I did. And I was home for Thanksgiving that first year that I'd moved to New York, and uh, Max said, had you made any friends yet? And, he, you know, and I said, just the people I work with. He said, do yourself a favor and go to the corner of um, Avenue A and 7th Street to a bar named Niagara. Um, which is still there. Which is still there. Because <laughs> I, um, I have used to go there. And it's still a great bar, but really at the time, I mean, it was the it was the king of rock and roll bars. Like, before the LES was, and the, and the East Village had really gotten to the crazy parts that it's gotten to. But um, I walked in and introduced myself to John Bush, and he's been a lifelong friend ever since. And I've partied with the guy. We've um, complained about our bosses to each other. We've... We've worked together. Um, he decided he was going to start getting serious about being a bartender, more serious than just slinging drinks in a rock and roll bar, um, and came and was one of the opening bartenders of Oto uh, with under Mario Batali and Joe Bastianich because he wanted to learn more about wine. And I said, well, hey, come come bartend at this place. You'll learn tons about wine. Um, and then he's also done, you know, worked at other cocktail bars when the whole cocktail culture started getting a little crazy and was always trying to expand himself. And we started talking really seriously I'd say uh, around 2009 about wanting to open our own place. And we didn't know where it was going to be. We didn't know what it was going to be like. Um, but I was working at Enoteca on the Lower East Side. Um, Jason Denton, who uh, was the owner of Enoteca, who's a longtime also Joe and Mario um, manager and partner and uh, was one of the – was the founder of Lupa um, – he had been asking me, look, if you're going to open your own place someday, work at a place that's like what you want to open. And so he was like, I explained to him the type of place I wanted to open, a real casual neighborhood joint. I was tired of working in fussy restaurants. I really, really wanted to be um, in a casual neighborhood, 
corner space where everybody's welcome, where you come for multiple meals during the week. Uh, the cuisine didn't really matter, but I'd been working in Italian for so long. Um, he was like, well, why don't you come be the general manager of Enoteca? So I was there for about three and a half years. And during that time, John and I started planning out what this restaurant that we were going to do was going to be. Um, I lived in Park Slope and kept walking by this corner. And um, the corner was at the corner of 7th Avenue and 15th Street in South Slope. Uh, and I walked in one day and um, asked them if they were willing to sell. I, I was like, I'm, I'm sorry. I know this is really forward of me, but you guys don't seem to be doing a lot of business. Curious if you'd ever think about selling your business. And they were. And so I called John and he came and looked at the space. And it was just one of those. You couldn't not look at it and say, that's a perfect pub. That's a perfect corner tavern. That's a perfect neighborhood watering joint. Um, and so we we turned it into Thistle Hill Tavern. So did you buy the lease from someone or how did you take over the space? We actually bought the condo. And that's also how, unfortunately, we lost the restaurant, too. Um, it was a commercial condo unit. So the whole building was condo residential. And this was a commercial condo unit as part of the condo. And so we were able to buy it from the previous owner. And so we got a mortgage and uh, from the punk rock music world. Um, Fat Mike of NoFX uh, has been one of John Bush's longtime like childhood friends. Uh, we called Mike up and said, hey, Mike, would you ever consider um, being our partner on this? Uh, the only way we can make it work is to buy the property. Uh, and we don't have that kind of cash. And he said, OK, I'll do it. I'll, I'll, I'll front the money for you guys to buy this this piece of real estate. But the one thing he said was, I need to have a no vote clause to sell if I ever need to sell the real estate. Not the business, but the real estate. And last year, he uh, he called us on that no clause vote. So um, he was going through a divorce and needed needed to kind of liquidate all of his assets. And Thistle Hill, unfortunately, ended up being one of them. So that's a tough moment for you because that's the first project that you and John do together. You've had tremendous success, a lot of growth, but did that meet that must have had a special oh, piece it was, it in was, your heart? It was crushing. It was crushing. Yeah. And, and so, um, John and I did everything for it. We built the place with our bare hands when, you, when we were looking to have somebody come and do tile work for the bathrooms and we couldn't afford him. It was, let's go down to home Depot and see if they've got a book on how to do tile, you know? And, and so like, that's, you've been, you both had been cutting your teeth working for other people but that moment when you finally decide to go out on your own and do it and really do it for yourself what's that moment feel like when you unlock the doors for thistle hill the first time and you both are like holy shit we're standing in our own restaurant it'd probably been the first time in 15 years yep. that it, that you'd been Done your own boss yeah, right yeah yeah, yeah. and and it, it was the only time i'd ever been my own boss because okay. i worked for my parents and they treated me like like the worst employee <laughs> that they had so um in a good way um it was huge it was a dream come true it was uh ex incredibly exciting and terrifying um mm -hmm. you know i know you've opened your own business too and the biggest piece of advice i'd give anybody is uh Whatever you need to live on, you better have that money for a year saved up in the bank if you're going to go try to open your own restaurant. Um, there were terrifying moments in the first year, but you get through it. It's uh, the, the time commitment from going to being a GM or a service director at a very high-intensity restaurant doesn't quite compare to no. being the person who has to like fix the sink no. when it and, breaks and, or whatever. And, and luckily, my wife and I and our one-year-old son... 
lived a block from Thistle Hill, uh, two blocks from Thistle Hill Tavern. Um, so that was huge. And, and uh, to this day, my son, who's almost nine, and my daughter, who's five, uh, my wife and I can be anywhere in the world. And people, older folks will come up to us and be like, you have the most well-behaved kids in a restaurant I've ever seen because they grew up in the restaurants <laughs> right. and, and I was not going to be the owner of the restaurant who had a kid who couldn't behave in a restaurant. So awesome. Yeah. So how do you meet Dale and become, how do you go from two to sure. three kings? So we met Dale before we even opened Thistle Hill. Um, I was the GM at Enoteca and there was a Saturday night. And um, for those of you that know New York city the or any city that's cold during the winter um the first couple days of spring when the weather breaks new yorkers lose lose their effing minds yeah. it's i always say you know start to gross anybody out but be prepared to mop up some vomit tonight because someone's going to get too drunk yeah people love to really crack into it the first couple days for and, sure and one of those first days at enoteca it was beautiful the wait for an outside table was two hours and dale had just finished doing top chef season four and I instantly recognized him, and the hostess told him it was going to be a two-hour wait. And he was like, all right, well, put our name down, and we'll walk around the neighborhood, and we'll come back. And I ran up to the hostess as he was walking away, and I said, did you see which way he went? And um, Enoteca was right next door to Babes in Toyland, um, which is the sex, sex, shop. sex shop right <laughs> next door. Um, and so I walked in, and he and his girlfriend at the time were in there, and he had a big, giant black dildo in his hand. And I said, hey, Mr. Talda, your table's ready. And he was, I said, if you have time to put that dildo down, your table's ready. <laughs> and he started laughing and came in and we were friends from there on out and we'd go for drinks and we'd hang out. And while John and I were building Thistle Hill Tavern, he called me one day and he was like, Hey, can I come out and see how it's going? I said, sure. Came out, he checked out construction. It had been, it was the first time he'd ever been out to Brooklyn. Um, and then we invited him back for opening night. He was there for opening night with his girlfriend. And then the next night, the second night, he was back again and he was having drinks and we were friends, but I was like. Yo, bro, you're back again tonight? He was like, yeah, yeah, just w wanted to come and see how it was going. And he was the last person there, and it was just John, Dale, and I at the bar. And we'd all gotten pretty pretty drunk, and um, he was like, hey, guys, I'm, I'm not supposed to tell anybody this, but I've, I've been asked back for another season of Top Chef, and it's going to be season eight, and it's going to be an all-star season. I don't care if I'm the first one voted off or I win the whole damn thing. I'm opening my own restaurant when it's over and done with. I didn't do it after season four because I had a lot more to learn, but I'm ready now. And everything I see that you guys are doing with Thistle Hill is what I want to do, but with an Asian restaurant. I want it to be a neighborhood joint. I want it to be. And we thought he was just about to ask us for advice. And he was like, would you guys consider being my business partners? And that's where it started. So Talde opens in 2012, Jersey City 2014, Miami 2015. Uh... I want to know, like, what do you think the contributing factors were to make Talday go from, quote unquote, a neighborhood modern Asian restaurant to a, a three unit restaurant in a very short period of time? I think a big part of it is luck and being in the wake of people like David Chang. Um, Dale never worked for David. Neither did I. I mean, we only know him very, very casually in passing at a food event. Um but we were very lucky that what he was doing uh, and what other chefs like him and guys like Danny Bowen and was really, really changing the way the world was looking at Asian food um, and that Asian food didn't need to be gimmicky. And it could be um, it could be as normal of a corner place doing really cutting edge, 
edge Asian food as a bistro, as a pizzeria, as, um, you know, uh, as any other restaurant. And so we were really lucky that that all happened at the same time and, and that we were kind of in that wake and we kind of got on board and, um, you know, a, a, a good guy that you and I both know uh, in the world of PR, um, a gentleman by the name of Kong Fan, um, kind of helped us coin and be a part of the term of calling what we were doing Asian American. Um, everybody had heard of Italian American, Jewish American, German American when it came to food, but the term of Asian American and these young, you know, first or second generation Asian chefs um, cooking the food that either they grew up around or had been inspired by, but through their lens of being an American and having gone to culinary school or worked for, um, you know, great, you know, European style chefs was all kind of coming together and we got to be a part of that. So I've always found Tolday to be an exciting restaurant and also not only because of the food, but also because of the vibe and the clientele. Like you can tell that there's a good blend when you eat there of neighborhood folks and mm -hmm. people that have traveled to eat there. Thanks. Um, how do you uh, manage expectation when you're in Brooklyn and you've got one location, three people, you can all kind of have eyes on the space. How do you manage expectations when you open up in Jersey City and Miami and people kind of know it as like TV star Dale Talday's restaurant? I, are the expectations a lot higher in Miami to kind of, you know, blow people's socks off as opposed to someone in Brooklyn who's like, that's just the good restaurant that's down the road from my apartment and I love it, you know? So I, I think people are so weird, but human, human nature, I think... What we do food-wise from Talday, Brooklyn, to Talday, Jersey City, to Talday, Miami Beach is really not different at all. Um, there are different dishes. Each executive chef gets to put a little bit of their spin on, on playing with Dale's style of cuisine. Uh, they can't go completely rogue, but they, they, they get to each do their own little spin. What has really been the change from one location to the next has been design and decor, and living up to those kinds of expectations. Because I think when people first come into a space, everything's about the visual, uh, how it makes them feel. Um, and in um, Talday, Brooklyn, the first Talday that we opened, it's very, very neighborhoody. It's a very simple room. Uh, there's some beautiful, beautiful, beautiful old um, Asian wood carvings around the room. But other than that, it's I've had people walk in and say, is this an Italian restaurant? Uh, what kind of food do you serve here? Because it's not in your face in any way whatsoever. I guess from the front doorway and from the bar, you might not uh, really be able to grasp what's going on. But those ornate wood carvings, you guys tracked those down, right? Yeah. There's like a cool story behind them, yeah. you, how you found them. So when we were, we were building out the space, the space had been a laundromat uh, when we took it over. Mm -hmm. But before that, it had been a, a bar many, many years ago called Radigan's. And we all we wanted to do, John and I, was make the, the space feel like it had never been a laundromat at any point and had just been an old bar or restaurant that had been there for many years. Kind of the same thing we did at Thistle Hill Tavern. Um, and there were going to be little Asian touches, but we didn't even know what they were. And we went um, there. They've got a couple stores around the city. Uh, and sometimes you see their trucks, a company called Old Good Things. And their main warehouses are out in Scranton, Pennsylvania. So we took a day trip out to Scranton. And in the first 10 minutes, we found this old fireplace mantelpiece. And we fell in love with it. And we asked if we could buy it. And they said, no, it's part of an entire room that we took out of this old mansion in Mamaroneck, New York. 
Um, it was owned by a man named Arnold Constable, uh, who kind of invented the modern-day department store predating Macy's. It was Arnold Constable department stores. Um, and his home was like up in Mamaroneck was like a little mini Hearst mansion in that every room in the house had a different theme. And his home office or study was the Oriental study. And it was all done with these wood carvings. And so um, I think we had maybe 40 grand set aside for decor and design. And we said, so how much is it for the whole set, for the whole room? And they were like $200,000. And we were like, and another friend who wasn't one, wasn't one of our, fr- our partners, just a friend went with us. And he was like, guys, just walk away. You can't do it. And we couldn't get over it. And so by the end of the day, looking through the entire place, John pulled me aside and he was like, if I ever walk into someone else's restaurant or bar and they got this, I'll want to kill myself. So we pulled the owners of of Old Good Things aside and we were like, can we make a deal? Can we pay you over time? And they were really, really sweet people that let us pay them over time. That's awesome. And it really just, I mean, I know you brought in new bones to the space, but it does feel like it it belongs there. Yeah, Yeah. it, it makes it feel like it was always there. And then one of the nice things is a little piece of that old wood, because there was a lot left over, made it into Talday, Jersey City, and a little bit of it made it into Talday, Miami Beach, too. Very cool. Yeah. So you've got sort of a, a current theme running yeah. through every through every spot. A little thread of history. Very nice. Uh, before we get into some of the newer projects, I do just want to touch on Pork Slope, which was another sort of beloved neighborhood project uh, that, you know, you do these projects that are very much like the cheer spot mm-hmm. where everyone can kind of hang out. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you speak for those of, who have never gone, tell us a little bit about what pork slope was like. And also I would love to hear about, you know, as you're having this forward upward trajectory, you have had a couple setbacks, which sure. is interesting to hear about, even though you've, you have nine, almost nine spots now. What does it feel like in the midst of success to have setbacks as well when you're closing the spaces? So I think having setbacks puts you into a club of, restaurant tours um, that is all of them because we've all had setbacks um, but it becomes one of those things where almost like the people you look up to and the people that um, you've kind of been following in the restaurant industry when you have one of these setbacks you get a lot of like um, the old dad or the uncle arm around the shoulder and like okay so you've been through that now you know what did you learn from it mm-hmm. um, and so we've had some good people that we've been able to talk to over the years um, that have kind of helped us get through that painful thing of closing one of your babies, you know, and closing one of the things that you had a lot of, of hopes for. Um, Pork Slope was a great neighborhood bar. Uh, Pork Slope really started with the name. Um, we were in Park Slope. Uh, we had talked very, very casually about the idea of doing a barbecue joint. Um, because the barbecue wave that kind of hit New York hadn't happened yet. Um, at Thistle in its first year, we would constantly ask our regular guests. What do you think the neighborhood's missing? What do you think the neighborhood's missing? What do you think the neighborhood's missing? And luckily for us, it kept the number one was modern Asian cuisine. We so opened all day. Filled that void. We filled that void. And the other one was barbecue. Um, places like Fleischer's hadn't opened yet. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Martin's hadn't opened yet. Um, a lot of other, other great places had not opened yet in New York. And we were a month away from opening and it was barbecue, barbecue, barbecue was what we were going to do. And um, our PR firm at the time told us, hey, guys, we just want to give you the heads up before you see it in the press. Dinosaur Barbecue is opening their first Brooklyn location two blocks away from you. 
And maybe we should have just stuck to our guns and done barbecue, but we let this, and we, we're friends with John Stage, who owns Dinosaur. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's given us good advice over the years, too. Um, but we panicked, and we started changing the concept. And from the day we found out Dinosaur Barbecue was coming in to the day we closed, we were constantly tinkering and tweaking and changing Pork Slope to the point where it never truly had um, its business identity. People loved it as a bar, um, but we were constantly uh, behind the eight ball, and we were never making any money. And, um, And our bookkeeper and our accountant sat us down one day and said, you know, if you're not finding a fix to change this to a money-making establishment, we think you guys should close it and put it on the market. So, uh, Mile End staff party my first year in New York City was at Pork Slope. Yeah. We had a good time. Yeah, it was a good party. We, <laughs> we drank quite a few uh, and had a lot of really delicious sandwiches. And uh, it's always kind of sad to see something go, but as a restaurateur, you have takeaways from it. I, I, as you moved forward with uh, the Three Kings restaurant group, you've gotten into this, uh, it's the hotel world. Mm-hmm. You're, you're, you've come full circle, and now you're back in hotels where mm-hmm. everything started. How does one get into a hotel? It's sort sure. of like the holy grail of, of restaurant tour yeah. life because there are a lot of benefits to being yep. in a hotel. Can you speak about how you first got involved with um, Com- Confidant in, in, in Miami, Miami. Yeah. and then also now you're in the Arlo, and sure. then you're about to be in 50 Bowery. Yep. So now you're like the hotel guy all right. of a sudden. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, we were just saying this the other day. We did a, an event um, uh, in Manhattan for um, City Harvest. Uh, and one of the things that restaurant people love chefs and restaurateurs love about events is that hour before the event starts where you get to catch up with all of your friends. Um, and we consider ourselves very lucky. And I, I say, um, you know, Eli, you and your brother, Max are part of it. I, I think we are all part of a really fun group of restaurateurs who have come about in their careers at the same time. I love our friends that, you know, have, have, um, opened restaurants at the same time we have. And at every one of these events, somebody is always pulling us aside and saying, so what's the secret? How'd you get into the hotel world? Tell me, man. We want to get in there, too. It was luck. It was all luck. I worked with a guy who had gotten into um, corporate food and beverage director positions, and um, we bumped into him at South Beach Wine and Food Festival one year, uh, and he said, how quickly can you guys put together a pitch for a restaurant in this hotel. The hotel is now called The Confidant. At the time, it was being opened as the Thompson Hotel Miami Beach. Somebody had pulled out, and um, their contract was still in negotiation. Um, uh, and we were told, you're going to put a pitch together. You have to present it to us, do a performa, the whole nine yards. You uh, may get it, you may not. And um, what impressed this company was how quickly we did it. Um, it was based on Talday. Uh, it was Talday, Miami Beach. So we had real numbers to show them. Uh, it wasn't um, it wasn't guesswork at all. We knew what our numbers were. We knew what our cost of goods were, and we were able to pitch very, very um, um, boldly. Uh, and I think that's what sealed the deal. And we landed that, and one has just spread to the next. We. You know, we are um, we're in three hotels now, the Confidant in Miami, 
um, the Arlo Hotel in uh, Nomad Neighborhood, where we have Masoni in the Heights. And we've just opened Hotel 50 Bowery down in Chinatown, uh, where we'll have three venues there, the first of which is open called The Crown. Um, and that ha- all happened in a short amount of time. But one breeds a lot more. We've probably turned down, and I'm, no exaggeration, 20 other hotel offers in the time that those three happened. Um, and I think it is the lessons that we learned from Pork Slope um, more than Thistle, because Thistle was just an unfortunate real estate uh, issue. But the lessons we learned from Pork Slope of sticking to your guns, knowing what your concept is, knowing what you're trying to be as a brand, and the age-old saying, if you don't respect your brand, no one else will. You know, And that's kind of, if we keep getting these hotel deals and they're the right fits, we'll keep taking them. If we're lucky enough. Beyond the vast experience of you three combined, the multiple years that you have, and then getting one underneath your belt in Miami, has it got any easier? Sure. Yeah. A- and uh, and do you think that now there's a potential and is there a desire to have 10 tall days, to have you know, five Masonis. Is that a direction that you want to go in or are, are you thinking of keeping things more siloed and doing hotels with unique projects? I would of say them? anything is possible. Um, if people keep coming to us saying we want another tall day, we want another Masoni, are you willing to do it? Well, those are two brands we feel very strongly about. We know how they run. We know they're successful. We know we can make money. We know we can make guests happy with those two brands. So if people keep coming to us asking for that, um, yeah, we'll do them. Um, but Dale and John and I often say, you know, that gets a little boring too. And we have a lot of other creative ideas in our heads. And um, you know, the restaurant that we're opening in, um, in Hotel 50 Bowery is going to be called Rice and Gold. And there will definitely be some Asian flair to it. Um, but, you know, we're Asian fusion when we first opened Talde was kind of like a corny, you know, dated term for a restaurant. Um, what we're doing at what we're going to do at Rice and Gold is also kind of a corny dated term, which is global fusion cuisine. And that's what we're going to be doing. And we're going to be proud of it. Um, we'd love to keep doing new things. Um, John, also in the hotel world, there's opportunities for multiple venues. Um, sometimes a hotel needs a great restaurant and a cocktail bar or a great restaurant and a nightlife component. And John, having spent his entire world uh, and his entire career behind bars, we have a lot of great concepts for just drinking holes, too, you know, and whether it be, you know, a, um, you know, a, a speakeasy type of feel or uh, a modern um, high end cocktail kind of joint or an everyman bar tucked away inside of a fancy hotel. Um, there's a lot of other things we want to do. Before we went on air, you mentioned that you have a buddy who's uh, got a restaurant group and they've gotten to a point, they're large and they needed to bring on a CEO. I'm curious, is there a point that you see at which Three Kings grows to a level at which uh, the three of you decide that you're now a real, real actual big (laughs) company and you're not a restaurant group that's just catching luck and getting a lot of uh, wind beneath the sails? Like, is there a point where you say to yourself, uh, we've gotten bigger than what I think we can handle? 
Yes. Um, short answer is yes. I think we are, if we're lucky enough, going to be able to grow to a place where um, John, Dale, and I don't necessarily have the skill set or the time management skills uh, to get it all done ourselves. Um, so I think bringing in um, people that have more experience in that world uh, will be our direction. But that's a scary thing. You know, one of the things that I think a lot of entrepreneurs um, need to say to themselves and be bold about themselves to get to become an entre- a successful entrepreneur is to feel like you're the best at what you're doing. And to say that you have, have gotten to a point where um, to continue to grow, you need somebody better than yourself is a little bit of a, um, a chip away at your own ego. And I think you have to do that. I, I think you have to set your ego aside if you want to um, grow past your own strengths in some respects. And I think there are things that as we do that, John Dale and I will actually get to maybe have a little bit more fun, although we have fun every day, um, a little bit more fun at being, um, the friend that you, that you referenced that was talking about having to hire a CEO, um, said, and I think my new title is going to be founder, uh, founder of his company. And, uh, there's a certain kind of fun ring to that. You know, I don't know if, if that will be the, the route for John Dale and I, but, the three of us being the the co-founders of Three Kings Restaurant Group kind of has a has a fun ring to it. Dave, thanks for joining us. There's a bunch of places where you can find Dave, John, and Dale's spots uh, all across the eastern seaboard. So it's probably the best way is to follow Dave on Twitter or go over to the Three Kings uh, and check out all their spots. But of course, they've got Day in Brooklyn, and then multiple locations opening up in Manhattan. Uh, appreciate you joining us here on the line and sharing all your stories. And uh, we'd love to have you back on and hear more about these new <laughs> new hotel projects and how they unfold. Uh, thanks again for being here. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Everybody join us every week, Tuesdays at 11 a.m. for a new chef or restaurant tour here on the line. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.